The reading is found in John's Gospel, chapter 13, starting at verse 31, and that can be found on page 1081. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews. So now I tell, now, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Thank you for reading. Uh, do keep that uh, passage open. Um, we're carrying on our series, uh, When I Am Gone. Uh, looking at the words and the actions of Jesus as he prepares to head uh, to the cross and then uh, to return to his Father in heaven. And I guess already in this series we've, we found, I think, Jesus' actions and words uh, both, I think, very challenging but also hugely encouraging in places. So let's pray, even as we engage with these words in front of us, that we will be both challenged, we will be, but also encouraged uh, by these uh, words of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, our, uh, our verses speak this evening of glory. And so we pray we might glimpse something of your glory as we listen uh, to Jesus, as, as he both reveals his love to us and calls us to display that same love. Please help us to feel something of the, the power and reality of that love that we might increasingly reflect it. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, this probably uh, shows uh, my age, but I wonder if you remember those government-produced uh, public information films uh, that popped up on our screens and in the cinemas. Uh, for films that warned us about the dangers that could be averted by the right actions. Uh, I always remember them because they always seem to be things that describe the blindingly obvious. Um, often narrated by a very posh and patronising voice, uh, these short films would warn us about some danger, I don't know, perhaps falling asleep at the wheel, and suggest that we didn't sort of snuggle up in the driver's seat with a hot water bottle, uh, put on lullabies on our uh, car radios, or chug down a mug of steam, steaming Horlicks. Well, I thought of those adverts as I read verse 35 of our passage this week. Uh, Jesus says, 
Um, and new commands I give you, love one another. Well, of course, we are to, to love one another. Uh, indeed, many would say, you haven't got to go to church to discover that. I haven't got to listen to, to Jesus to know that we should love others. Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it, on that subject? Uh, the Beatles put it pretty well. All you need uh, is love. And the world seems pretty happy to join in and sing along. But I think as we already started to do this evening, we're going to see that Jesus' call to love is both radical and massively countercultural. It goes far beyond finding people uh, like us or people we like and being nice to them. Indeed, whatever the world says about love, uh, wherever it sets the bar, this call of Jesus to, uh, to love raises the bar far higher. And it's true, before Jesus even speaks these words, the Bible actually has already raised the bar when it comes to love. Do you remember how it describes back in Leviticus how we should love our neighbour as ourselves? Uh, showing the same commitment uh, to others around us, uh, to their good, their well-being, uh, as we show to ourselves. Well, I already feel the challenge about that. But the Bible not only raises the bar as to how we are to love, it challenges us too by widening the net of who we are to love. Uh, so we're told that uh, when a foreigner resides uh, around you, um, you are to treat them as if they were native-born. Uh, love them as yourself, uh, for you are foreigners in Egypt. Really are to show love to, to the stranger among us, not just to the neighbour, uh, but to show love to those who look different to us, maybe act differently to us. And then, of course, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, he makes it clear that our love is to extend to our enemies, to those we would naturally perhaps resent or even hate. Yes, says Jesus, we are to love such too. But maybe as we kind of question the scale of the challenge, uh, the, the height that Jesus raises the bar in those words about loving enemies, uh, Jesus is going to take that bar far higher. Uh, in fact, so high that he calls this a new commandment. He's so going to radically stretch our ideas about what love looks like that all the natural conventions and categories will prove inadequate when it comes to what Jesus is talking about. So listen again to the whole of verse 34. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. I was doing a school assembly this week at a local school. It's a Church of England school. And as you arrive at the, the building, uh, on, the, on the wall is a big banner displaying those words. And parents and children, I think, walk past it, teachers too, every day. And I doubt it even registers now on their radios just how radical and countercultural Jesus' words are. But here in this chapter and what follows, uh, that astonishing scale and scope of that call to love, I think, is revealed. Indeed, if you want to see just how radical these words are, if you want to grasp what it, this call to love really looks like, um, Jesus has reached the moment in history where he will show us. 
verse 1, the full extent of his love. Remember how the chapter begins. He now showed them the full extent of his love. And it wasn't displayed, was it, in giving a bunch of flowers or a box of chocolates or an Amazon gift card. It was revealed as Jesus wraps a towel around his waist, as we've been reminded of already, uh, as he, the Lord, stoops to wash the dirty feet of his friends. And we thought, I mean, uh, a few weeks back, of the shock and significance uh, that it was, and how it prefigured something uh, even more astonishing the moment when the definition of love will be stretched further. Still, as mocked and beaten, Jesus allowed his arms to be stretched out on a Roman cross for us and for our sin. And Jesus wants us to see that if there's any bar, any standard by which we are to love, then that's it. That's the kind of love we are to show to one another. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. I want to think a little bit more about those words, uh, a little bit more slowly, as it were, and perhaps a bit more deeply. And the first question is, well, who are we uh, to love, according to Jesus in this verse? And the answer says, that Jesus gives us, is that we are to love one another. Now, we've already seen that God calls us to love uh, neighbours, strangers, enemies, which in my book covers most people. But here Jesus says he particularly wants Christians to be loving towards other Christians. That's the one another that's in view in these words. Of course, not to the exclusion of others, like we're some kind of clique or something, but Jesus is acknowledging that just as there should be a specific kind of love, a priority of love even, uh, in the human family. So there is to be within the Christian family, that priority of love for Christian brothers and sisters. I, I think we get that, don't we? It would be odd, wouldn't it, for example, uh, if a colleague at the desk next to us at work showed far greater commitment to loving you than he did his family. You'd think it would be odd, wouldn't you, I think? It would be worrying. And so if we're Christians here tonight, then we are part of God's family. And it is a family to be characterised by love and loving relationships. Love one another. That's not favouritism. It's simply being family. And people should be able to see from outside and look in and discover that this family is very close. They, they really care for one another. This is a family characterised by love. Uh, love one another. But how? Uh, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Well, as we've seen, the, the, the events before and the events after these words spoken are the context in which uh, Jesus gives this command, as I have loved you, love one another. So set between the foot washing and the death of Jesus, we discover that both these events reveal something of the way Jesus loves us and the standard to which we are called to love one another. So let's think back to that uh, first event. Let me again read from 
verse 3, chapter 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It is a scandalous act, isn't it? A shocking act that would have normally been undertaken by the lowest of slaves. And here, Jesus, the Lord, uh, condescends. He stoops, doesn't he, to undertake the lowliest and the filthiest of jobs. And I said it is a powerful picture of what he's about to do as he undertakes that even more humiliating and costly act um, as he's nailed to a cross to be that saviour of sinners. Uh, to take the very lowest of places and even to become sin uh, for us. And that, says Jesus, is the kind of love we are to have uh, within the family and some of us saw a couple of Sundays ago, and in our home groups, Jesus makes that point very explicit, doesn't he, in verse 14 of the chapter. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now some have concluded that we are to literally uh, wash each other's feet. Uh, and there are church, churches that have foot washing services. But I, I think Jesus is really giving us an example of the sort of lowly, humbling love that he calls us to show uh, to one another. And so loving one another, I think, means uh, looking for ways to humble ourselves and serve one another, just as Jesus does for his friends here. Now, acting in a way that will cost us perhaps our status or even diminish our importance, perhaps, in the eyes of others. And Jesus does press home, doesn't he, this idea in verse 16. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sends him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I was willing, says Jesus, to stoop to the, to the lowest, leaving behind the glory of heaven, being born in poverty and in scandal, knowing rejection and hatred, and now I'm about to be humiliated in death. I stooped. And if I, your master, did that, don't imagine that it will be any different for his servants. I think it's true, isn't it? Most of our failure to love one another comes down to how important we think we are. Often too important to serve others, especially when we consider them lower uh, than ourselves. But Jesus doesn't have that mindset, does he? He really is the most important, the greatest person in the world. And yet he doesn't balk at serving people far lower than himself. Even to get down and dirty uh, to do so. I don't know about you, I find Jesus' teaching here very uh, challenging. So often I can turn down an opportunity uh, to love and care for someone and justify it perhaps on the grounds that uh, I'm busy. Perhaps I'm busy in very important things. I'm trying to look after a church, you know, while we're waiting for Edward. Uh, uh, surely someone else can step in and serve while I get on with the important job. 
When I look at Jesus, who had the job of running the universe and is now about to redeem it through his death, and now I see him watching the feet of his friends on his knees, I realise how just how messed up my thinking is sometimes. Surely I'd love to help, but the problem is I think I'm a bit too, more, a bit too important, more important than perhaps Jesus. But no servant is greater than his master. If Jesus can stoop, if he can humble himself in loving service of his family, so can I. So often, not always, but often the importance of what we need to do gets in the way of serving and loving as Jesus loved. And again, it comes down to that issue of self-importance. Sometimes we're so consumed on me by our agendas and their priority. And it never occurs to us to even that there might be people with needs greater than our own. Or needs that we should serve. But here's Jesus just hours before the cross and he's on his knees washing feet. And Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. So what does that look like practically, even this week? I was thinking, right, maybe we just need to stop, don't we? Uh, we need to step back from the busyness of being consumed, perhaps by our own agendas, and to repent of the ways we do make ourselves the centre of things. The way we so quickly, I guess, fixate on our own needs and concerns, so that often the needs of others barely even features on our radars. Perhaps we need to stop and humbly ask God to, to open our eyes to the priorities that he wants us to pursue that make others more important than even me. Perhaps we might think of this week of those perhaps in our home groups and ask ourselves, uh, uh, where are the needs that I might meet? Where are the places of need where I might serve a, a sister or a brother? Maybe as you take some time seeking uh, with God's help to put ourselves in the shoes of others. Um, it might shift us away from that default setting, uh, that me-centered mindset. Maybe we need to uh, hold less tightly to the material God, goods that God has blessed us with um, so that we can meet the needs of the wider family. I'm not thinking of things as ultimately our own, but as those things that God has given us uh, to be stewards of and to use for his glory in the service of others. Certainly in the coming months, we, we will, won't we, see many in our family, perhaps, who will really struggle to, to make ends meet. Some we might be able to help very practically as we seek to love like Jesus. Whatever that demand of loving, whatever that demand of loving seems perhaps too hard or too challenging, our passage keeps urging us doesn't it to look at Jesus running a universe but stooping washing feet with hands that would soon submit to nails as he loves serves us but as well as, as loving so humbly and sacrificially I think there's one other aspect of Jesus's love that uh, we need to understand if we are going to love too and that is to love I think purposefully so Jesus didn't turn up, did he, uh, on earth and do a survey uh, of us to ask how we might like to be loved. Uh, how we might feel good about ourselves or feel affirmed. 
He didn't come, did he, to flatter us. Uh, he came to save us. Indeed, John, early in his gospel, reminds us that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that those who would otherwise perish could be saved and have eternal life as they believed in Jesus. See, Jesus comes in with a particular goal in view. He's got very clear convictions about what we most need. And the truth is, if we are to love one another as Jesus loved us, then our love for one another has to be shaped, doesn't it, by those same priorities and concerns that Jesus had. I think this is where, again, uh, the world's love and Christian love is very, very different. So the world says, uh, the way you love me is to affirm my ambitions, my desires, the things that I feel constitute my goods and secure my comfort. That's certainly true, isn't it, in the area of sexuality that we're thinking about a lot in the moment. Uh, if you love me, the world says, you will need to approve my desires and how I choose to express them. Loving me means affirming me, whatever I want to be or to do. But when Jesus expresses his love to us, he, he doesn't flatter our desires. He, he loves us in, in line with what God wants to do in us. His love is shaped by the Father's agenda and purposes. And so to love one another will at times be incredibly challenging, won't it? Perhaps saying difficult things to each other that our sinful self would rather not hear or say. So as the Church of England engages in a process called living in love and faith, as it tries to decide what to affirm when it comes to marriage and sexuality, we, we do need to listen to people and what they feel and want. But ultimately, we do have to listen, don't we, to the Bible so that we can truly actually love people well in line with God's good and wise purposes. And this kind of purposeful love, ultimately uh, shaped by God's purposes, will affect our choices and our decisions and indeed the way we love one another. So just imagine a, a couple looking for their first home and the wife falls in love with a lovely house in a town where there's perhaps no good Bible teaching church. And maybe she says to her husband, if you love me, this is what I really want. But the husband really wants to grow in his faith and he loves his wife and he really wants her to grow in her faith. It's hard. But in that instance, to truly love her may mean not doing so on her terms or the way that she might want. Or maybe you, you, you have a friend who's tempted by a great job has real prospects and great pay, but its demands will make it impossible to keep serving at church. Uh, perhaps using his gifts with the teenagers or committing to any kind of service really in the church. What are you going to say? How are we going to love that friend? It's hard, isn't it? It's costly kind of love uh, as we are shaped by God's agenda uh, for us and for one another, not ours. Again, it's a, it's a kind of love, isn't it, that turns the world's agenda on its head. It's an unusual love. It's a unique love, I think. Very different from what the world thinks and believes about love. And it has to be, doesn't it, radically different for the, the last part of our passage to make any kind of sense. Let me read again from verse 34. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. 
You see, if we love just like the world loves, then people will naturally think we belong to the world. We're no different from the world. But, but loving like this, loving like Jesus, humbly, sacrificially, purposefully, in line with God's agenda, means we are going to be different. We will stand out as those who belong to Jesus, who are his disciples, who follow him. Well, if these are words of challenge to live distinctively, uh, to live one, love one another radically, these are words, aren't they? A wonderful promise, too. A promise to encourage us and strengthen our resolve to truly love like Jesus loves. And if you read the New Testament, if you read through the book of Acts, for example, we do get these glorious glimpses, don't we, of that radical kind of love operating within the church. And did it stand out? Did it get noticed? You bet it did. Significantly, they got nicknamed, didn't they? Christians. Because that's how they lived. That's how they loved. Just this week, I was reading some accounts of how people described the early church. Even those who opposed it in some way. So here's a guy called Marcianus Aristides, writing around 125 AD. These are amazing words. Uh, Christians live in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. They do. So they did not embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. If one or other of them has servants or slaves, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. Uh, they love one another, esteem widows, and rescue orphans, and any who ill-treat them. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him in to their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. They do not call them brothers after the flesh, but brothers after the spirit and in God. Uh, Tertullian, an early church father, could write these words without fear of contradiction. He says, look, they say, how they, that's the Christians, love one another. Uh, for they... The non-Christians uh, hate one another and see how they, the Christians, are ready to die for each other when they, the non-Christians, are readier to kill one another. I remember my time uh, working and studying in Spain a number of years back now. Uh, I, I arrived in Spain not knowing a single soul as I turned up uh, to that uh, uh, new city. And on that first Sunday, I went to my local uh, evangelical church, which I found, um, as a stranger. And I was welcomed. I was loved. I was shown hospitality. Uh, I was cared for. I was prayed for. And for that on that first Sunday, I discovered I had a family. And I remember some of my friends being shocked when I described my experiences. I remember one uh, fellow German student disappointed halfway through the year saying, I've never seen the inside of a Spanish home. And uh, seeing some of the envy as I describe my experience of my family. It wasn't difficult to invite her to church because I knew that when she came, she would be able to glimpse something and experience something of that love, even if some of the things she heard offended her. One of the great privileges of being in a church for a while is you start to see those kinds of radical loving going on. 
those who care for individuals consistently, sacrificially, uh, often hidden away from the limelights and from public view. Uh, those who hold on to their resources very loosely, always looking opportunities to be generous, when it means even giving up comforts and conveniences that they might, the world says, have a right to. See how they love. Well, I wonder if there's anyone outside the church who might say that of us, uh, of this community, uh, this family. See how they love. Again, I was reading just in this week uh, how Christians in the third century chose not to flee cities which were affected by plague so they might care for others, even though it would mean often they died themselves. I've just been moved just in the past two or three years of seeing people uh, who've been serving the church during this time of COVID and doing so willingly and sacrificially, even though they're vulnerable, risking their own lives to serve. Challenge is very clear, isn't it, from this passage? It's very clear. Uh, but I don't want to end up by missing uh, just a little bit of how this passage begins and connecting it to what we've been thinking about. Let me read again just from the beginning of our passage. When Jesus had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. There you make of those verses, but here's Jesus talking a lot, isn't he, about glory. And I was trying to figure out what's the connection between glory and then this call to love that we've been exploring uh, this evening. Well, glory is a very big word in John's Gospel. It all has to do with God revealing himself, uh, acting in a way or speaking in a way that shows, as it were, the godness of God, if you like. His godness sort of shining out. Of course, as you read through John's Gospel, that godness is shining out, isn't it, through one person, through Jesus, shining out as he does amazing miracles, as he turns water into wine and reveals glory, his glory, the glory of God. And now Jesus is speaking, isn't he, of the moment that that glory is going to shine out at its brightest, giving us the greatest and most glorious picture of who God is as Jesus sacrifices himself for us, where we see the true reality, the true goodness and love of God. And now in this supreme moment of revealing himself at the cross, we discover that God is a, a dying on the cross kind of God. A loving people who don't deserve it kind of God. A humbling himself to the bottom kind of God. A paying whatever it takes to meet our needs kind of God. So here's the connection, I think, between this theme of God's glory and our call to love. You see, if we love like Jesus, as we reflect his love for us, then we, in a tiny way, help that shining out. We display to a watching and often cynical world something of who God is. That great lover who humbles himself sacrificially and purposefully uh, on the cross to love us and redeem us. And even showing something about him, we show, don't we, too, something of his great purposes to 
change and redeem the world. New commandments I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, let's this week, with God's help, willingly and joyfully respond to that call uh, for the good of one another and supremely for the glory, the shining out of God's glory in this community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the challenge of these words, but also the encouragement. Father, we recognize that as we are called to display that love that you have shown, we need to know that love in our experience. So please keep humbling us by that love and encouraging us as we see it most gloriously displayed at the cross. And even as we reflect that very poorly and very inadequately, may we be those that you use to shine out your glory to a world that thinks it understands love but doesn't understand your love. So please help us and use us as we respond to this challenge. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.